Hey y'all, welcome to Shelf Life, a podcast where I, Nicole Barbosa, chat with some of the coolest people in publishing about the wonderful world of books. In each episode, my guest and I will chat all about their book, Real or Imaginary, and then place it on a shelf alongside other authors and books that inspire them. Great literature frozen in time. It's definitely one for all the bibliophiles. In today's episode, I chat with author Jennifer Keishan Armstrong about her new book, Sex in the City and Us, How Four Single Women Change the Way We Think. Growing up in the suburbs of Chicago, Jennifer enjoyed a childhood full of Sweet Valley High books and stacks of TV guides. Her love of TV and pop culture eventually led her to Manhattan and a job at Entertainment Weekly, where she worked for 10 years. In addition to her latest book on Sex in the City, Jennifer is also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Seinfeldia. This year marks the 20th anniversary of Sex in the City, so I couldn't help but wonder, just how much has this show influenced us in the last 20 years? Grab a cupcake and a Cosmo, and let's get lost with Carrie, Charlotte, Samantha, and Miranda. When I knew that this was coming out, I knew that I had to have my hands on it, and I'm pretty sure that I got it when the U.S released it as opposed to waiting around for the UK release because as much as I love living in the UK it takes too damn long for books to come out sometimes especially when they're bestsellers and ones that I absolutely have to read. It'd be really interesting for people who haven't read the book yet to kind of give a brief synopsis about what Sex in the City and Us is about. I mean it sort of is what you think it is. Uh, it's you know I write what I call sort of biographies of TV shows. So it is a cultural history of Sex and the City, all the way from Candace Bushnell coming up with her column and book that it was based on in the beginning through all of its cultural effects to now. I love the story that Sarah Jessica Parker tells about the fact that she didn't even know the pilot had come out yet. And she and someone's like, Oh, I think I saw you in a in a show. And she's like, Oh yeah, I forgot about that. And it's just so funny that that kind of just turned into this phenomenon. I mean, do you, that's probably a good word for it, isn't it? It's turned into over 20 years. It's it's a phenomenon, isn't it? Absolutely. And I mean, honestly, I don't know if I would have written a book if it wasn't, you know, like that's a pretty good, I have a pretty high bar and that's that's a good definition for one of the things that would make me actually write a book about a show, especially 20 years later. It's like, you know, most shows don't live up to this treatment because they don't stay in our consciousness like this. And I'm also always looking for that effect that we were talking about on many different people, you know, not just we liked the show, but that it actually really affected our lives. It was not supposed to be a phenomenon, which no show is, nobody can ever expect that. But really, Darren coming from Melrose, and he actually saw this as his like art project. He was trying specifically, it's sort of hilarious in retrospect, but he was trying specifically to not make a hugely popular show. He wanted to have more creative freedom. He wanted to make something quirky that was his. He was thinking more about, his vision was that it would be more like an indie movie every week. Um, And I do think you can kind of see that sensibility in the beginning, but it's pretty funny to think of the show that like launched a million Manola Blahniks. I've always wanted to know why authors pick the titles that they do. Why did you pick Sex in the City and Us? I had originally even considered like Sex in the City and Me, but I then decided not to just focus on my own story because I do share my story in the book of how 
this show affected my life, but I ended up also including the stories of several other people whose lives were also affected by it, whether it was job choices or moving to the classic moving to New York or even like sexual choices, all of these things, people had effects on their lives. And so I, that was why I went with this. And it's also like, this is another just like inside baseball thing, but with writing books about TV shows, it's really great if you can get the title of the show into the title of the book so that people are really clear about what it is and can find it if they're looking for it. So with all of those things together, that is, that's how we came up. I mean, it's weird that all of that goes into just an incredibly simple title like Sex and the City and Us, but that was sort of the thinking behind it. But I think what's really nice about the fact that, you know, because like you said, you, you could have titled it Sex and the City and Me and talk about, you know, from your perspective, from your personal experience, what that show meant to you. And it, and, and as you said, there are elements of, of you and your personality and everything that come out in the book. And and I think what's really nice is the fact that it is Sex and the City and Us is as soon as you see that at the bookstore, you're like, yeah, it was and us because it built such a strong knit community of viewers, of fans. And and these are shows that you can just go to over and over again. I've both shows. I've had people tell me that they can't go to sleep without watching an episode. They just do it as kind of like part of their going to bed ritual, like have some tea and watch a Sex in the City or a Seinfeld. And that makes sense to me. And that is Friends also has this effect on people. Um Whereas, yeah, some of the more, it's like, are you really going to watch like Breaking Bad every night before you go to bed? Like one hopes not. Um, You probably won't have very good sleep. So there is this, you know, I think we don't make as many shows like this as we used to. And I'm loving, like I'm really gravitating, in fact, right now to on some level towards some of these shows that like Darren Starr is now making a show called Younger. Um, I don't know if it's as like deep and resonant as a sex in the city, but it sure is pleasant and it's characters you love and it's fun. And, you know, it's like, I hate to do it in these times, but in these times, you know, you kind of need a little bit of that as well. And I think that's why people also go back right now to things like sex in the city and Seinfeld. It's comfort food. The way that we watch television now, where we're literally binging series and, you know, with Sex and the City, you know, when it first aired in 1998 and then obviously into 2004, you only got to watch an episode a week. You couldn't watch all, you know, 18 episodes or all, you know, all these episodes all in one go. Do you think, I I think that's really interesting. Do you think that if Sex and the City had been binge worthy back in that time, do you think that it? it would have been as enjoyable to watch it so quickly, so, you know, kind of rapid pace? Or do you think the fact that we looked forward to what was going to happen every week, that that had, you know, a a special element to it? It does seem more fun that way to some extent. Then again, I'm always like, is it just that we're like, oh, we're nostalgic for old times, whatever. Um, We should do it the way we used to. But, you know, I mean, it's also very bingeable. And I think a lot of people have done that. And because it's, you know, it's emotional, but it's still overall, the arc is relatively pleasant. So it gives you a nice balance of like a little bit of meat to it, but still pretty pleasant. Um, I think it is, it is bingeable. But yeah, I just, I mean, I think TV shows are different now. And a large part of that is that the makers know whether it's a Netflix show like Orange is the New Black where they know someone might get is going to get the whole season at once and might watch it in two days. So they really make it so that you want to hit that button again in like 
next episode, next episode, next episode. TV's crazy now. It's really intense because of partly because of this, I think, and partly because there's just so many options that everyone's trying to get our attention. So yeah, I mean, I think that Sex and the City was pretty attention worthy even back then. It was pretty water cooler worthy, but it it strikes me now like watching all kinds of shows that like everything feels intense, whether it's The Handmaid's Tale or like I just got into Riverdale recently and binged the entire two seasons in like a month and like it made me a little crazy because it was it's it's a teen show but it's like murder all the time and like all this crazy stuff so yeah I think I think Sex and the City would be different if you if you made it now for sure because everything's different going back to that first time that you watched Sex and the City I would love for you to just take us back to that day what were your first impressions? Was it love at first watch? Just kind of explain to us how the Sex and the City kind of love came about. I wish that I could remember in great detail the first time I watched it because I had no idea I was like 20 years later going to write a book about it. But I do, I did watch it, I'm pretty sure, from the beginning. Um, I had HBO. I, I believe that I was watching it back in Chicago, which is where I was before I moved to New York. And I moved to New York during kind of the heights of Sex and the City in like the fourth season or so. And loved the show from the beginning, you know, kind of had that like from afar experience of like, oh, it looks so cool to be in New York City. Um, And then when I moved was actually when kind of like I start to remember watching it much more because all of a sudden it was like I would watch the show and then at the time I was living in the New Jersey suburbs and I would go into the city for my job at Entertainment Weekly and then it was like oh I'm here in Sex and the City land and as I write about in the book I literally started to like I had a friend who had just moved to New York as well and we would like no joke actually watch the show and then like go to the places that they went to because we were so enamored of the fact that we could we had just both moved to New York and I as I also explained to people we this is a dumb side note but we didn't have the like we had the internet but like we didn't have like you know cell phones like we do now we couldn't just yelp places we didn't know where to go there's a lot of places to go in New York and so this kind of simplified it for us and gave us these little destinations like we're gonna go get you know, drinks at this bar they, they went to, we're going to go to Sushi Samba, we're going to go to um, uh, Magnolia for cupcakes. And it was both just a practical thing of like, okay, at least now we have somewhere to go and we feel like we know what we're doing. And also like it, it made us feel a little like we were part of that group of women. And it was something that we were really aspiring to at the time. And I know we were not alone in that. The, the cupcake thing obviously has to be discussed because really laughed on the tube when you were talking about like tour buses that come and get these like droves of cupcakes. And, you know, my favorite um, Magnolia Bakery, I think it's on Columbus, um, where it's across from a Kate Spade as well, which is no coincidence. And um, and I love that one. And actually, you know, I I watched the episode where Miranda and Carrie are talking about her crush on Aiden and they're having a cupcake and I wanted to have that same experience. I wanted to sit on a bench and have a cupcake, but I found myself actually not even doing that. So I got to Magnolia Bakery and I ended up having their banana pudding instead because it's famous and I love banana pudding. (laughs) I love banana pudding. So I was like, okay, well then I'll just be Carrie eating banana pudding on a bench instead of a cupcake, which was totally fine. You know, 
when it comes to kind of favorites, which obviously the cupcake is a massive favorite for, for anyone and everyone who comes to, to New York City, what are some other kind of favorites that come to mind that when you were writing the book, you just wrote it down and you went, oh my gosh, that has to be my favorite episode or that has to be my favorite character or what? Like how, how enjoyable was that for you to really bring the favorites of yours to life in this book? I mean, I always think that like just writing these books, I think they're driven by passion to a large extent. I mean, I recommend that to anyone writing any book ever is, you know, you have to kind of be really into what you're doing to, for, in one way or another. And, um, yeah, I have lots of favorites. Um, I think that my favorite, I have like kind of two favorite episodes. Like, um, my actual like favorite favorite is, uh, my motherboard myself, which is when, um, Miranda's mother dies. Uh, that just gets me every time I cry every time, it just gets to me. And, but the caveat to that is that I actually did a ranking of every single episode of sex in the city for vulture.com, which is another, that was like a very hard, a much harder project than I expected. And I ended up actually not making that number one. I made it number two because I felt like the other one that was in my mind just had more like sex in the city, classic elements. So that one is the one that's kind of known as the 9-11 episode. This is I Heart New York, and I write about it in the book as well. And both between the backstory and um, what's in it, actually, and what it meant to people, I felt like it had to be number one. So that's the one where Big is leaving to move to Napa, and he and Carrie go on what they think is like a final date in New York City, and they do all these classic New York City things. And the amazing thing about that episode is that they wrote it and filmed it before 9-11 happened, and, but it was going to run afterwards. And it had all of these elements that made it seem like they were doing a tribute when, in fact, they didn't know it. It's just sort of like a weird coincidence that turned out well. It's a very sort of melancholy episode. It felt like the show growing up a little. Miranda also has her baby in that episode. Big is going away. There's the I Heart New York. You know, it's literally called that. And it was always going to be called that. Um, she talks at the end about how seasons change and so do relationships and so do cities. So I just, and it has that great scene where she and Big play the record um, Moon River and do the twist to it. So like all of those things together, it's just so beautiful. And I think important to the show that that's sort of like my other, my, my professional favorite is that. And I guess my personal favorite is um, my motherboard myself. Those are both very good episodes. And I, I was, you know, nodding profusely as you were going through the different elements. And, it, you know, you do touch in your book about the I Heart New York episode. You also mentioned the fact that, and I didn't know this reading this, this is what was so great about your book is that as diehard of a Sex and the City fan as I felt I was before I opened your book, I learned so much and it was it was such a delight to read, which is, you know, why I'm, I'm so glad that you're here talking to me today. But interestingly that they removed the Twin Towers from the opening scene, uh, you know, with Carrie and her tutu and everything like that, you know, when, when that happened. And, and for a show like that, which a lot of the, the kind of bones of it is, is being filmed in areas that obviously that happened. And, you know, I can't not mention the fact that we're recording on today of all days, you know, September 11th. So it's, it's, it's very appropriate that we're kind of touching on this. And even if you're not from New York, even if you're, you know, New York City, even if you're not 
you've never been to Manhattan, if you've never walked the streets, uh, as, as I love to do, New York City is one of my favorite places to walk around. And and that is, is one of the other things about this show is that these producers, these writers, you know, g- gave us a gift every week of, of being able to to venture and to, to go to places that we perhaps might not have been able to do physically, but we can do spiritually and emotionally. We can go to those bars with all the, with the girls and we can, you know, be on the carriage ride that Big and, and Carrie do together towards the end when she finds out that, you know, Miranda has gone into labor. And, you know, it, it is such a beautiful episode. And even when there are times when things are quite predictable and, you know, okay, that relationship isn't going to last very long. Or in terms of, of watching the show, there are still moments where I think I am still surprised in a good way of what the show represents and what it's giving to its viewers and things. When you were writing the book, what kind of aspects of what you were writing about and, and learning more about the show and talking to people, what surprised you the most when you were writing the book? What comes to mind is actually just that um, this is more of a like, this isn't something I learned in research exactly, but it's from watching the show over and over again. And from And, you know, when you watch it at different ages, you notice different things. And I really noticed this time that I think Charlotte is underrated. I feel like she has such an arc, like the actress herself, I think, you know, came in from Melrose. It's like you said, it's a, let's say a different kind of acting, you know, and really comes into her own. And like, she gets so, and early on, she gets so many of the worst, like weird requests from dudes, because as Darren told me in the book, I think, you know, he said something like, there's something about throwing a pie in the face of a beautiful girl. And he was speaking specifically of her. She goes through so much. She gets her Prince Charming, who turns out to be first impotent and then doesn't want to give her a child and then gives her a cardboard baby. You know, and I don't have kids and I don't want them, but somehow being a little older watching that now and having friends who went through IVF and that sort of thing, I appreciated it so much more. And just having her dream crushed is so important because she realizes that Prince Charming isn't going to come the way she expected. And she ends up with Harry, who I think is my favorite guy. I'm together. They're my favorite long-lasting couple. And I have no qualms with them. All The rest, I have, you know, a little, well, I like Steve too. But, you know, I have issues with almost all the other sort of lasting couples. But this one I just think is perfect. And they have their problems. They have a horrible fight where she says very mean things to him. But also, like, her conversion to Judaism is so beautiful. And she just really goes through some real stuff. That was something I appreciated a lot, watching it through this time. And maybe it was even because of my research, because I did talk to Kristen and found her just to be so delightful, like very much in Charlotte ways, but also like a little edgier and a little cooler. Um, And I don't know, maybe that was part of it is that I just had a new appreciation for both the character's evolution and the actress. I think she gets short tripped as just like the romantic one, when in fact she went through some serious stuff. If you had to choose a favorite of the four, what would you say? Or do you feel in kind of certain ways, especially after writing this book and living through these kind of, you know, vicariously through these women living in New York and stuff like that, do you have a little bit of each of them kind of in you? I definitely think I have each of them in that in me. I think like I can see, I can see very specific phases of my life when I went through each one. And my guess is some that a lot of us have similar patterns, but maybe a little different for each of us. I think I grew up a Charlotte 
became a Carrie when I left my fiance, as I talk about in the book, and moved into Manhattan by myself. Kind of, it was kind of like a mess and all over the place. And then I think I was a little bit of a Samantha for a short time when I was like working that out and decided to just be like, I need to experience as many men as possible in my freedom before I settle down again. And then um, I think that I ended up Miranda, which a lot of us, I think, do. I think a lot of us, you know, start as a carrier or something, something like it and end up a Miranda, which is even headed professional voice of reason and feminism. And something I've been pleased to find out in doing this book is that it sounds like, you know, a lot of the younger women who are picking up the show really have connected immediately to Miranda. And I've read some great pieces online about how, like, if the show was made now, Miranda would be the main character because we'd be more interested in we let now we sort of prioritize these ideas of being smart and professional and feminist. Whereas at the time she was supposed to be kind of like the one no one wanted to be the stick in the mud, you know, the feminist. So it's great to see that evolution as well. And most people now kind of can see that Carrie is terrible at times, though that is also why I loved her and why many of us loved her, because you would just look at her and go, uh, why is she doing that now? As you were talking about Miranda being the, the stick in the mud feminist, I think that's such a great kind of phrase. Some great lines that really make you think, you know, and I think it's season two when Carrie's dating the new Yankee, you know, new, nobody rebounds with the new Yankee. First episode of season two and, and, I think it's this one and Miranda gets up she's trying to show them her palm pilot and the show has not aged well in the sense that nobody's going to be talking about palm pilots now but I, I love it but you know she's trying to explain it and bless her she's trying so hard and then she just says you know what call me when can talk about something other than balls and boys and big and you know, what about what we think, what we feel, what we know, you know, how is it that for intelligent women, all they can talk about is boys and who hasn't said that to a friend or who hasn't thought that, you know, once, once in their, or not multiple times in their life, there's something about the dynamic of these women that makes you question your own friendships and makes you question how you view female friendships. And that's kind of what I also wanted to ask you when you were writing this book. How has this show really changed the way that we see female friendships and how we view our own female friendships? I think the, one of the biggest things this show did, period, was to sort of prioritize those relationships throughout the show. Yes, there's a lot of romantic comedy stuff with the guys who end up being their, you know, longtime meant-to-be kind of guys. But it's really about these four women and their friendship. It's, I mean, it's unrealistic at times in the level at which they can like always be together. And, you know, even if you're four single women, it's hard to see each other for brunch every week or whatever. But that's what's great about it. They are each other's family. They, what that does is it allows this idea that women can be single for as long as they want because they can make their own family. You don't, it's, it's saying that you don't need a man to have a complete life or to even have a family of sorts, you know, and that's even going back to my motherboard myself, a huge part of that is the fact that the other three women go to the funeral to be there for Miranda and, you know, Carrie at the end kind of like runs up to walk down the aisle with her when all of her siblings are with their significant others. And that's the big moment there. And to me, that's what Sex and the City is all about. Making being a single woman over 30 who's professional and independent be actually glamorous and 
seem doable at the same time. And it's really these women who the, the other women, the, the friends that make it kind of doable for them. They're really there for each other. So in 1998, I was 13 years old. So I, I do remember actually turning it on when it broadcasted and knowing that I would probably get in trouble if I ever got caught and I had no idea what they were talking about, but I knew that I wanted to see what all the fuss was about. But then I really didn't get into Sex and the City until I was in college and I was borrowing the DVDs from one of my um, you know, friends who lived down the hall from me. And it was really interesting for me to watch Sex and the City at that time. So 18, coming to college, having that freedom and, you know, obviously all of the girls around me were discovering sex, were having their first relationships and everything like that. And it is really interesting to learn about sex, learn about relationships, learn about what is okay to do while watching a show like that and being at a, at a place like a college or a university and exploring what your freedom is both, you know, personally and emotionally and sexually. And I wonder if, I wonder how young women today view sex and city if it actually is still their kind of gateway into how relationships work do you think that that will always kind of be it will kind of be like a bible for 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 women through generations possibly to some i mean i have found evidence that some some younger people are still picking it up and watching it that way i had a lot of people who said really sweet things like you know the reason they like to watch it is that these women like keep getting knocked down in relationships and keep getting back up and I think that that's a really good lesson. I still think there's a lot of like adult, I call it adult sex ed, this show. Like it's, we still don't really, I know we have the internet now, so it's a little different, but like we still don't really talk about sex the way, explicitly the way they do. And I say explicit, but I mean that in a good way. It's not like sexy explicit. It's like, let's have a discussion about rimming. Let's have, you know, it's just very straightforward. It's like, you no, know, I know I learned a lot from the show in terms of like sexual menu options. I talked to people in the book who had similar experiences. I still think it has value in that way. There are certainly shows that now sort of picked up the baton and maybe even take it a little further at times like Broad City or an Insecure in different ways. I don't know if you have been following, but there's a show over here in the UK called Wonderlust and it's it stars Tony Collette. And it was in the news of Reese. I love Tony Clad. It was in the news recently because she had an orgasm on TV. She dared to have an orgasm on, on TV. And, you know, everyone is talking about, oh my gosh, how is it 2018? And we are still talking about women having orgasms in television shows. And, you know, as soon as I was reading, you know, all the great articles and over here and everything, I was thinking to myself, we had six seasons of a television show where women are having orgasms around the clock. And, you know, at the time, people were just like, oh, my gosh, wow. But it's HBO, so we can we can push that envelope. We can go to those boundaries and stuff. But why are people still shocked that women are having orgasms on TV in 2018? Why is that the case? I mean, it is, it is pretty incredible, isn't it? And that's why the show was so such a big deal then and kind of continues to be necessary to some extent. I think back to like, we were just talking about the episode where um, Samantha loses her orgasm and they talk a lot about it. And I think this is, this is the thing that the show did and maybe we still need more of, which is the talking about it as well. So that maybe that wouldn't make it as shocking when it happens. <laughs> like, 
I mean, I thought it was a goal. I thought it was a good thing. I mean, it's, it is pretty extraordinary. I think women's sexuality is still so scary to people. And that's what this show worked to combat and did to some extent, but it's still incredibly scary to a lot of people. And I think that that's what's behind things like that. You know, um, it's kind of amazing. Like we should be talking more about women's pleasure. We should be, you know, we should be talking about the the good side of sex as well. In addition to things like the Me Too movement, I think talking about what women do want, how to know what women want, when they want it versus don't want it. All of those things are super, super important. And they're all part of the same discussion in a way. I completely agree. And also what I found really interesting about Sex in the City is that, you know, you read stats and you read studies about women and, and sex and their preferences and things like that. And a lot of women do not orgasm through sex, you know, through through intercourse. You know, it, it, it that's not what does it for them. However, in the show, it's very much portrayed as that is really common. <laughs> I love when I love when Carrie says, "Okay, let's retrace your steps. Were you on top?" And then Samantha's like, "Well, how is that relevant?" And it's just like you can get it on the bottom sideways bottom. She's like, okay, well now you're just showing off. And it's just like, that's really true. And that's the one of the few times they talk about not exactly that, but again, I'm just going to keep harping on this one episode about in my motherboard myself, but it's really great. There's a great conversation that happens in there in the middle of it where they're like, you know, talking where it's, I think Charlotte and Carrie and Samantha, because Miranda's with her mother and they're talking about like, you know, the other two, not Samantha, uh, Carrie and Charlotte are like, well, you don't come every time, right? And she makes, she has some joke about like, if I RSVP to a party, I make sure to come. And they're like, but not every time, right? She's like, yes, every, and they're like, what are you talking about? How is that possible? So like, they're kind of saying like, they don't come every time. Most don't. Um, I think just little things like that actually are really important. And the shows that have come after them, you know, I think that come in their footsteps really. Like, do address some of these things a little bit more and we're getting there, but it is, it's taking like way longer than one might think. You do mention those kind of areas that have kind of evolved with time and things, but, but there is, when people sit down to watch Sex in the City, they know that they're watching a show from the nineties and, and early two thousands. I think if you're going to do a show that is trying to push boundaries, especially like this one, you're going to probably run afoul of, some boundaries sometimes and talked a lot about this. We've done a lot of work on this front in just the last couple years on television. And yeah, now a lot of this stuff would not fly, but that's, that's 20 years for you. I think if you, if you watch it for what it is, which, you know, at the time it was extremely, you know, it was seen as pushing the envelope in lots of ways. I mean, this is another one of those where you have to like do the time machine back you know, any of my books always require this moment of like, okay, wait, what was it actually like in 1998? And again, we've come a long way. This started right before Will and Grace, kind of concurrent in terms of its actual airing. Like Michael Patrick King worked on the first season of Sex and the City and it was in the can and then they didn't know what was going to happen with it. So he went off to be a consulting producer on Will and Grace, which I think you can clearly see the connection between the two, the like bad puns and all of that stuff. I love the bad puns. I mean that in a good way. You know, lots of puns, lots of like, you know, entendre and that sort of thing. On the other hand, they're rightly, I think, 
credited to a large extent with sort of at least pulling gay male characters into mainstream television. So it was a really big deal. And occasionally there's a couple episodes where like Stanford is, has like a storyline where he like, the one I think of is he dates the guy who has the doll, the doll collection on his right. So he gets moments of sort of like primacy with his own sex life and love life. You know, there are huge broad stereotypes still. But I think they were to the mainstream in the way that the mainstream would accept probably the most. Fascinating, though, there's like only one episode. There is the lesbian episode, right? That's that's not true. There's a couple. There's the lesbian episode where Charlotte hangs out with the power lesbians for one episode, and then that's <laughs> it. And then they kick her out, which is completely fair. It's a complete, I actually like that. I think it's a completely fair depiction of like you don't get to just like enjoy our feminine energy right like we're not just your playthings but then they're largely absent that community is largely absent until um samantha briefly dates a woman and has sort of a tempestuous relationship with her and then that's over very quickly i think wasn't sort of folded into the fabric of the show and they did not do a tremendous job of kind of the spectrum. Like the more problematic parts are like when they do the, the one where Carrie dates a bisexual man, that one's really weird to 2018 eyes too. Like, and they say a lot of strange things about like, well, I knew when he took you ice skating, bisexuality is a stop on the way to gay town or something like that, yeah. which is definitely not our understanding of the spectrum at this point. Um, and Carrie, who is a sex columnist, in New York City is absolutely like very flustered and she's very upset when she goes to a party with this guy and they play spin they play like ambisexual spin the bottle she is forced to oh my god kiss Alanis Morissette which like what I would literally pay money I grew up in the 90s like I would literally pay millions of dollars to make out with Alanis Morissette and even as a straight woman like why would you not want to do that? She runs out of the party. Like, oh my God, what is that? Like, I'm like, you're a sex columnist in the like most progressive city. My sort of theory overall about this show is they were doing so much for women's sexuality. Like they were pushing it so hard, so fast that whether they knew they were doing this or not, I think they made a lot of bargains on other sides. So, you know, this is the problem we face when talking about TV history and TV is such a document of the exact time that this, I mean, to me, this is part of what makes it interesting. I think as long as we notice and discuss these things, we can enjoy the good parts and notice and discuss the not so good parts. We can always go back to those episodes that we love. We can always go back to those characters that we love and know that even though they have their flaws, we still love them. And that that's really interesting. Did you find that when you wrote the book? What we've learned is that Charlotte had the biggest actual character transformation and Miranda had the biggest physical transformation wardrobe kind of and I do think that's appropriate I think she did go from this very sort of closed off if you remember at the beginning like that was the thing with her is she goes from very closed off to relationships right that's the point of of Steve really is that like she keeps being she keeps pushing him away and then she ends up with him not only just with him but like with a baby and taking care of that mother-in-law, you can really see it. I, I love what happens to the other characters who are not Carrie in the finale, because I think we can see that they all had a transformation. I think it's interesting that Carrie is the supposed protagonist and probably has had the least, as you as we said before, emotional kind of transformation. She's just like, still waiting for me. Oh, look, I got it at the end. Um, like it's kind of it. And that's disappointing to me. But the others, you see these unbelievable 
transformations when oh like it kills me when Magda says to Miranda at the end something about like this is what real love is when she's and she's talking about Miranda caring for Steve's mother I'm getting choked up talking about it now I think one of the reasons why I love this show so much is going back to what you said which is the the friendships that develop through the six seasons and it's it's interesting how you can you can watch one season and then you're like, okay, that's kind of how the the friendships are going to be for for this particular season. You know, this is this is the development. This is kind of how it's going to going to be. And then episode at the very end when they're sat at the you know cafe and Big comes in and Miranda leans across you know and says, "Go get our girl." And that always makes me cry because by you know by and large you know when she says goodbye to them at the coffee shop that makes me cry as well but you know it's just it's so it's the perfect way to kind of solidify that relationship of those four women that have taken us six seasons to to get across and I just think it is very much a a tribute and a love letter to 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 females and and to friendship and stuff and there's just so many moments of empowerment because as you said you can take it as it is and you can take it as a timestamp of 90s and early 2000s. But at the end of the day, it makes it leaves you feeling empowered. And a lot of that has to do with with the friendships themselves. So I wanted to ask kind of the, the last question, which, um, you know, is kind of the premise of, of this um, podcast, which is, you know, kind of your bookshelf. So we're going to Imagine that we're putting your book on a bookshelf, uh, Great Literature Frozen in Time, and I would love it if you could just, you know, in a couple of minutes or however long you want to take, absolutely fine, talk about kind of other authors or books that, you know, you would want to put on that bookshelf alongside your book. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm gonna talk, I'll start with one obvious one, which is um, Candace Bushnell and Sex and the City, I think it's important. I really, I spent some time on her in the book because I think in weird ways, she doesn't get enough credit. Um, we know she's part of it. We know she wrote the book. We know she's famous, but it's like, I felt like her story wasn't very well told a lot of the time. So I was really interested in like, were you really like Carrie Bradshaw, which it turns out she was, um, really like wearing her designer outfits while also sleeping on a friend's sofa bed, which I love and was very sort of scrappy and a real journalist working her way up and just kind of stumbled on this idea. And it really was her own idea as well, which I think is super important and people just don't realize. Also much darker depiction of uh, dating in New York City if you read the Sex and the City book. So if you go read that book, be prepared because I've read most of the reviews online now are very angry because they come into it thinking it's gonna be happy fun times like Sex and the City, the show, and it's not. Um, So I would say that. I would say with that, I talk a lot about Bridget Jones in the book as kind of a concurrent thing. And she's not, Bridget Jones as a character is not as edgy or like I always, I kind of imagine her like being at the same singles table at a wedding with uh, Carrie and Carrie being like, ugh. Um, But I love Bridget Jones and she was a huge, that Helen Fielding's book, especially the first one, was such a huge inspiration for me. And I actually remember reading it around the same time. Um, And, you know, just there was something about that that was so relatable that made me feel like I could write books. I think that that's so important, like finding those books that are both aspirational because they're good, but also make you feel like, oh, I, I think I could do that if I worked really hard. You know, this 
And another, probably one of my biggest favorite authors in that vein is Nick Hornby. Um, I read all of his books probably multiple times and he's another one of those he's really really good and probably underrated in a way just in the sense that like I don't know if people realize what a good actual writer he is because he's so natural and it reminds me a little of Sex in the City in that way like if you don't pay enough attention to Sex in the City you don't realize that it's an incredible show and you know, Nick Hornby also does a lot of the same things, which is like the combination of the funny and the light with sort of more serious, real life, relatable things. And it's hard to write about regular life as opposed to I feel like we're very much in this moment of like superheroes. And even I love, love, love The Handmaid's Tale. But, you know, that's a that's a very extreme situation versus just writing about regular people's everyday lives. Um, so I would say those, those are the big ones that especially kind of make me think of the period of sex in the city and also me eventually writing this book, which like I, if someone had told me I would end up writing a book about sex in the city when I was watching it 20 years ago, I would, I would be very excited. Let's just go with that. And aren't we so glad that you did write it because it is such a fantastic book and I want everyone to read it. And those are fantastic books, by the way, to have on your bookshelf. Obviously, Bridget Jones is, I I feel like, although I wouldn't want her to be the fifth character in Sex and City, I feel like she would probably, you know, call them out on their BS occasionally and, uh, you know, just tell them, you know, to wear you know, old lady knickers and, you know, just get their shit together. I think that that probably would have been Bridget, Bridget for sure. And fabulous book. Absolutely love it. Um, thank you so much for, for coming on and, and chatting with me. And uh, just so everybody knows as well, how can they get in touch with you if they want to tell you how fabulous you are and how great your book is? Um, if you go to jenniferkarmstrong.com, you can find everything. But I'm also like basically jmkarmstrong on Instagram and Twitter as well. So um, it's easy to find me everywhere on the internet. Perfect. And just a little shout out as well that Jennifer is doing her own podcast. Do you want to tell us really quickly what that's about and how people can listen to that as well? It's a good one for this podcast as a podcast audience. Uh, it's called Pop Literacy. The idea is to talk to the creative minds behind your favorite pop culture. So lots of writers and people like that, just like in my books, and also to give you smart things to say about pop culture in those inevitable um, conversations that come up at cocktail parties where people are like, cannot believe you haven't seen Breaking Bad or The Handmaid's Tale or one of these things, we're going to give you like cool things to say in those conversations so you can just sound like the smartest person in the room. You never even have to watch the show. That sounds absolutely perfect. I'm sure that everyone will be listening to it in droves. So yes, that's amazing. Thank you so much, Jennifer. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Shelf Life. I'd love for you to tell me what you thought of it, either on Twitter or Instagram, or by leaving a review on iTunes. Until next time, happy reading.